Three Deaths, No Life, Part 6. Regular listeners will have noticed that there has regularly been nothing to listen to uh, over the last three weeks, for which I apologise. But now let's dive straight back into the action. When it all kicked off, we were collecting a few thousand pounds a week and it was easy. Did we get complacent? No, we weren't taking any more risks than before and we were as careful as we always had been about the big things. But you know how it is when a small business expands too quickly? That special something they had gets lost. That attention to detail that made them successful in the first place. That's what happened to us. Clearly we couldn't take on more staff, so expansion stretched me and Keith further and further. We had less time to spend really getting to know our clients, figuring out what made them tick and keeping track of what was going on in their lives. By the time we took Longy on, we were going through the motions of a well-rehearsed routine. Success breeds complacency no matter how careful you are. We had no idea what kind of pressure he was under and when he started to crack up, we didn't see the signs until it was far too late. It turns out that Longy was not only a drug dealer, he was also a serious problem gambler with considerable debts. He'd lied to his wife about the casino visit being a one-off. He was there most lunchtimes, losing steadily. The proceeds of the coke enterprise were largely soaked up keeping whoever he owed money to off his back. We thought he was stashing it all away in savings, not paying down debt. Classic failure to do due diligence, Keith would later lament. Longy's attitude to money seemed to be easy come, easy go. The dealing seemed more of a romantic enterprise than a financial one, a way for him to appear Byronic and dangerous in front of the squares and to preserve his youthful rebelliousness in the face of adulthood's relentless creeping barrage. He certainly never gave any sign that money was a worry, until he did. We didn't realise how much paying us would hurt him and how much danger it would put him in because we didn't have the time to manage the account properly. I was asleep, trailing people here and there more and more of the time while Keith was handling the financial side of the business. I mean, nine times out of ten you can get away with a little corner cutting like that. You can't predict the appearance of somebody like Nigel. I hadn't seen Longy for a couple of weeks. Most clients paid monthly for mutual convenience. That day, a Sunday, he was due to make payment by the sandpits as usual. I was there early, taking in the golden afternoon sunlight through the last leaves of autumn. The woods were damp and vari-coloured fungus was sprouting at the roots of trees, on stumps and piles of yellow and brown leaves. Crows and pigeons pecked around in the sand, oblivious to my presence. I was hovering maybe fifteen feet in the air, looking out for Colonel Aureliano Buendia, as the dog's arrival would herald the imminent appearance of his owner. I heard a loud woof behind and below me, and turning, I saw the colonel lolloping into the clearing. The birds scattered. Seeing the sand, he bounded straight into it. As soon as his paws made landfall, he stiffened with excitement. He jumped, putting his head down and his front legs out as if someone were about to throw a ball for him. He span round and round again in a circle, close in pursuit of his flapping tail. He stopped, quivering, and pricked his ears, looking to the left and right, as though he suspected someone was creeping up on him. Then he started to dig, slowly at first, then faster and faster. 
Colonel Aureliano Buendia's back legs hopped up and down as he dug, as if they were impatient for it to be their turn to join in the fun. The result was that the dog slowly described a perfect circle around the pit he was excavating. He stopped suddenly. Woof! 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 Then he started again. I like dogs and their unself-conscious fun. Imagine feeling that much joy just from digging a hole in some sand and barking a bit. How much easier life would have been as a dog. While I was pondering this, Trevor Long appeared. He looked in a bad way. Usually Longy was pretty well turned out, but today he was wearing tracksuit bottoms and a big overcoat. And odd shoes. He hadn't shaved in days, and his eyes were a pissy yellow. He kept scratching his head, and the patch on his scalp he was scratching was red and starting to go bald. Longy was mumbling to himself and occasionally let out a high-pitched staccato laugh. When he emerged into the clearing, the dog stopped digging and looked quizzically and sympathetically at him. Colonel Aureliano Buendia could tell something was wrong. Dogs know, like with epilepsy. He trotted over to Longy and pressed his chin against his thigh, looking up at his owner. Without looking at him, Longy took a treat out of his pocket and held it to the dog's mouth. Reassured, Colonel Aureliano Buendia snuffled it up and ran back to the sandpit, whose life-changingly exciting properties he immediately rediscovered. Longy walked on to the appointed tree and took a wad of notes out of his coat pocket. This was unusual, as we were pretty clear with clients that cash had to be concealed and deposited in a waterproof container, especially at this time of year. Laughing bitterly to himself, Longy stuffed them one by one into the trunk's hole. I may not have a golden retriever's sixth sense, but even I could tell that this was looking like a risky client. I followed him as he shambled through the woods, seemingly oblivious to his surroundings. Colonel Aureliano Buendia would gallop past every so often, engaged upon unfathomable canine errands at distant points in the forest. At some point, as happened on most of these walks, he came back soaking wet and covered in mud. Under normal circumstances, this would elicit a groan of disappointment from Longy and an unheeded lecture to the filthy pet, whose face always betrayed his immense satisfaction at successfully getting covered in black slime, no matter how apologetic he tried to look. Today, Longy barely acknowledged the coming and going of the dog. I shadowed the pair all the way home, past the Muslim cemetery and out of the woods, onto a dreary industrial estate. Skeletal budlier sprouted from cracked concrete on boarded up and fenced off empty lots. Anticline paint flaked like sunburn, dripping red welts of rust from the grey walls of flat-roofed units crowned with razor wire. Dirty white air conditioners hummed on the rear walls of the few premises that were open that day. One had a plastic bag caught in its grill, which fluttered frantically like a bird trapped under the paws of a cat. Security companies' faded signs hung from the walls, threatening would-be intruders with long-gone CCTV rottweilers and guards. The very same dead leaves that had been so uplifting in the woods here formed a coagulated scum or froth on the pavement, clogging the drains. Clouds had covered the sun, and the damp grey sky bled into the grey buildings. Longy was walking in the middle of the road. 
Even the irrepressibly cheerful Colonel Aureliano Buendia hung his head as he trudged along at his owner's heels. Exiting the desolate business park, the man, dog and ghostly stalker found themselves on a broad grass verge bordering an empty access road. On the other side there was another verge bounded by a long fence, wooden this time. Over the top of the fence peeped the upper floors of a row of identikit starter houses. The two-tone brickwork imparted a Lego vibe to the estate, emphasising its flimsiness and impermanence compared to the weight and solidity of Keith's squat Victorian terrace home. A hundred yards to the left there was a gap in the fence and a path leading through. This is where Longy was heading. He weaved between two overlapping steel barriers, fixed in place to prevent motorbikes using the alleyway. I glided through them a few paces behind. Colonel Aureliano Buendia stopped to sniff a steaming pile of horse shit, but his investigations were left incomplete as Longy walked on, pulling the dog along in his wake. Exiting the passage, we emerged onto a street of bulk-built semi-detached houses, Gardens identically furnished with immature trees and still labelled shrubs gave away how new this street was, as did the yellow-grey sand and cement smear along the tarmac, and the digger at the far end. This estate was still being built. Longy and Colonel Aureliano Buendia turned up the narrow, empty driveway to one of the boxy houses. I had been here before, of course, but not during the daytime. The darkness highlights the difference between these houses, Daylight brings out the similarities. I remember all of this vividly because of what happened next, like my brain already knew what was coming before I did. I drifted upwards as Longy let himself in, keeping a whining Colonel Aureliano Buendia out with his foot, before emerging holding a tattered towel which he proceeded to scrub the mud-caked dog with. From above, the houses were even less distinguishable from one another. Only the occasional back garden trampoline line of washing or shed broke up the uniformity. After a few minutes of surveying the houses, the desolate business park and the woodland beyond, I glided back down and passed through Trevor Long's still open front door. On an Ikea sideboard, unopened mail was piled up high alongside several empty wine bottles. Shoes and coats festooned the entrance hall's floor. The doormat was rumpled and folded over, no doubt from high-speed canine cornering. The IKEA theme was continued in the living room, minimal Scandinavian design mixed with full English clutter. A Noda coffee table had plates bearing the remains of several meals in various stages of decay. The beige carpet was marred by dark muddy footprints leading to Colonel Aureliano Buendia's filthy dog bed. I went on into the kitchen diner, where Longy was sat on a white layfast chair at a white Bilster cafe table, scratching his bald patch, face lit by the cold glare of his laptop screen. It made him look even paler, like a corpse. There was a bottle of whiskey on the table, and a cupboard door open behind him. The sink was full. The microwave door was open as well. Flies buzzed around the lidless knod bin and the dog's bowl. A note was attached to the fridge door with a magnet saying Lago di Garda. It said, I've gone to my mum's. Don't follow me. Don't call me. Just do whatever it is you have to do. Claire. The laptop was a chunky old thing that looked at least seven or eight years old. A big metallic label was affixed to the lid reading Everard Academy, a good school, raising aspiration in the community. 
where the label was peeling away, it had left a gummy white residue. I drifted round to look over Longy's shoulder. He was trying to open word. Nothing was happening. He clicked on the icon again. Then again. There really is no point in hitting a mouse button over and over again, even if it feels like there is. It doesn't help, and it often makes things worse. I know. Longy let out a harsh sigh, and his face dropped into his hands. Colonel Aureliano Buendia's head appeared around the living room door, his eyes saying, You okay, hon? After a few seconds, Longy turned his face back up to the screen. Word still hadn't started up. He pursed his lips and exhaled heavily, reaching for the whiskey bottle. Dropping the lid on the floor, Longy took a long swig. The reappearing dog sniffed at the fallen bottle top and, appalled, sculped back into the living room. Once the programme had finally started up, the teacher-slash-dealer began typing what appeared to be a letter. Dear Sir, I am so sorry to let you down like this, but I've come to the conclusion that I must bring our partnership to an end. I'm very grateful for the opportunities you've given me, and naturally I will pay everything that I owe, plus whatever interest and exit charges you think are appropriate. All I need is a week to get the money together. We've always had a good relationship, and I hope you will understand my decision. I owe it to my wife and my parents to get out of this self-destructive cycle. He paused, thinking what to say next. At that moment, a black window opened at the bottom of the screen. A white vertical cursor flashed in its top left-hand corner. I assumed it was one of those background things computers are always doing for themselves until letters slowly began to appear. You will pay, and you will not stop. The consequences will otherwise be bad. Whoever this was coming from was a very bad typist. There were a lot of corrections required to get even that message across. It continued. I own you. You have until tomorrow, you knut. Mr Long stared at the screen, his face absolutely frozen. He moved his own cursor into the black box and clicked repeatedly so as to either delete or reply to the unknown source of the threats, but nothing happened. Slowly and one by one, the letters T, U and N disappeared. They were replaced by a U, an N and finally a T. Longy leapt back out of his leafas. The whiskey bottle tottered on its end, but luckily did not fall over. He blinked spasmodically. His left hand twitched. The doorbell rang. I jumped nearly as much as Longy did. His face was white, like a sweaty ghost. Staring at where the sound had come from, he sat down, then stood up again. A silhouette could be seen through the frosted glass of the front door. The shadow raised its right arm, and banged out a cheery shave and a haircut on the frame. There was a pause that seemed to last for minutes. Longy stood with his mouth open, goggling at the front door. Eventually, he looked at his watch. He blinked, shook his head and wiped his face, as if coming out of a trance. Fuck! He picked up the booze and stuffed it back into the open cupboard. He scampered into the living room and scooped up the plates, cutlery and other mealtime detritus from the coffee table, whisking it into the kitchen. Closing the kitchen door firmly behind him, Longy went to meet the visitor. His right hand on the door handle, Mr Long wiped his mouth with his left hand. He opened it. Nigel! 
Outside the door was a man in his forties, holding a stack of lever-arch files under one arm, and with a proper old-fashioned leather satchel slung over his shoulder. Compared to the mess that was Trevor Long, he was immaculately dressed. Deck shoes, red trousers with a deep maroon stitching and brass rivets, pink linen shirt under a barber jacket. Deep colours glowed out from his clothing that contrasted starkly with the grey-beige decor of the long house. The man's skin glowed, too. It was tanned, but still boyish, not leathery. His hands were huge, half as broad again as Longy's. The handshake he delivered jolted the spindly teacher's shoulder. The new arrival smiled like someone who's never been nervous, never felt awkward, never given blending into the background of a scene a second thought. I'd never seen anyone who looked so fucking healthy before. Trevor, not early, am I? The visitor had the vestiges of a Yorkshire accent under his Surrey drawl. He moved slowly as if to look at a watch. No, 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 come in, please. The sheer presence that this Nigel was emitting had turned the terrified zombie I'd been watching a few minutes ago into an obsequious, fawning subordinate. I could have sworn Longy was even stooping so as to appear smaller. Nigel strode into the living room and placed his folders down on the recently vacated Noda. He stroked Colonel Aureliano Buendia's head. Satisfied that everything was in order, the dog trotted out of the room. Thought I'd just pop these round for review? Touch base, so to speak, before the FGB on Wednesday? Want to make sure all key personnel are properly briefed? As he spoke, his eyebrows rose very gradually and expectantly. There was a moment's pause before Longy grasped what was expected from him and resumed the Uriah Heap Act. Can I get you anything? Sorry. Tea? Coffee? Please, have a seat. Tea, Trevor, unless you've got a fresh pot of coffee on. Can't bear instant, can you? Milk, no sugar. Nigel unslung the satchel from his shoulder as Longy scuttled away, repeating tea, milk, no sugar. Slipping through the door into the devastated kitchen, Trevor Long closed it silently behind himself once again. I followed Longy through the door. He slammed the lid shut on the computer and grabbed the kettle. Tea, milk, no sugar, he intoned under his breath as he filled it under the tap. Just deal with this for now. Concentrate. Be normal. As Trevor made the tea, things appeared to have become normal again. But that's just how it looked at that precise moment. I went back into the living room. The curtains were closed, and plastic sheeting had been laid over the floor and the two Echinis armchairs beside the kitchen door. Nigel had his back to me and was fiddling with something in front of his stomach. I didn't know what I was looking at. A moment later, Longy came into the room backwards, pushing the handle down with one bum cheek, a mug of tea in each hand. Sorry about that, Nigel. The wife's away and, er, uh, I'd forgotten to chuck the old milk away. It's okay, I had some more. Semi-skimmed, I hope that's all right. He noticed the plastic sheeting and turned round, a puzzled expression on his face. What's this, Nigel? I own you. Two muffled gunshots rang out. Blood, bits of brain and skull, tea, they all went straight through me and splattered the living room wall behind. Trevor Long fell back into the kitchen door and then slumped forwards, dead. Again, time stopped. I stared at the body. Nothing moved. You weren't there a moment ago. Where did you come from? 
I looked up. Nigel was staring straight at me. He was wearing an apron and leather gloves, and he was holding a gun with an elegant matte black silencer on the end of it. On the brink of panic, I glanced around the room trying to see who he could be talking to. Yes, you. I can see you, Nigel said. I need to get out of here. Time to wake up, I thought, but nothing happened. Nothing happened. I decided to run, out via the kitchen and away through the gardens back towards the industrial estate. I ran. I looked back over my shoulder as I headed for the back door. Nigel had started walking after me. My ear and shoulder exploded in a burst of pain, and I fell hard to the floor, cracking the rear of my skull on the tiles as my head flipped back, sending the bilster and the laptop flying. I'd run into the door. The door. My skull. The tiles. I was solid. My body was here with me. I was here, in the flesh. Who are you? Where the fuck were you hiding? Come back! Nigel's eerie calm had evaporated, and his confusion was quickly turning to anger. He pulled a mobile phone from one pocket with his free hand, and speed-dialed a number without taking his eyes off me. Get round the back of the house, right now! There's someone else here! I scrambled to my feet, grasping for the door handle as the killer advanced towards me. I heard the garden gate begin to rattle violently. Only then did I wake up. My heart was pounding, my real heart in my real chest. I was staring at the ceiling of my bedroom. I put my hand to my ear. It hurt like hell. I looked at my fingers and there was blood on them. Was it all mine? I sat up and began to cough. The bruise on the back of my head came to life and began to ache worse and worse as my chest heaved. There was a gentle but impatient knock at the door. You all right in there? Keith, you've been ages. What's the problem? It's Trevor Long, for Christ's sake. How much easier can it get? Now my shoulder added its deep burn to the pain ensemble. I staggered out of bed and opened the door. There was Keith, clad in an oversized black t-shirt, this time bearing the legend Brusilov Offensive, and a monochrome picture of a pine forest with barbed wire entanglements strung between the trees. He looked more irritated than concerned. "'Has he gone?' he asked, as though addressing the question to an exasperating child. "'Keith. Sean. Keith. What? What the fuck is the matter with you? He's dead. Who's dead?' "'Trevor Long.' Keith squinted at me, as though what he was hearing could be made sense of by focusing his eyes properly. Trevor Long is dead. Some guy called Nigel shot him at his house. Shot him? He shot him. With a gun. Yeah, I assumed you meant with a gun, Sean, not a fucking harpoon. I was right there. Well, that's drug dealers for you, I suppose, Keith said, turning away to walk back down the stairs. Comes with the territory, as they say. The cash is in the tree as usual, though, right? I came out of the bedroom and ran down the stairs. Keith was putting his shoes on as I skidded to a halt in front of him. This is a problem, he commented absent-mindedly. Yes, yes it is, I panted in reply. Where are Peter Smithson and his mates going to get their coat now? How does this play out for us, I wonder? Presumably somebody further upstream will reach out to Longy's customers sooner or later. Although... I suppose they don't still have to be using to want everything keeping quiet. Actually, Sean, Keith looked up, becoming more animated. We could tell them we know all about the killing, 
make vague threats about tangling them up in it, turn the screws a bit, put the rates up. We'll at least cover what we lose from Longy and probably be able to make up a bit more to boot. I saw him die, Keith. I felt it on my face. Don't be dramatic. Metaphors are rarely helpful in business, Sean. You didn't feel it because you were here, in your bedroom, the whole time. Maybe it felt like you felt it, but that's just your emotions talking. You have to keep them in check. You've had a shock, I understand, of course. It's very sad and everything, but you can't be sentimental. None of it's real. None of it's real? My forehead felt suddenly cold and damp. Not only was it real, but it was our fault. We'd driven Longy to the despair that got him killed. It was our fault. My fault. It is real. Well, you know what I mean. Keith waved his hand in irritation. You know why I liked you from the moment we met, Sean? I could see you were a man who could manage his emotions. We are rational people. Emotions are not for people like us. They're for the herd, who can't think with their brains the way we can. Now, I'm not saying you didn't see Trevor Long die. If you did, I'm sure it was very traumatic for you. Personally, I think you're blowing it out of proportion, but that's probably how most people would react to that experience. You just need to take a deep breath and think, think properly about how this can play out for us and our business. Having finished his speech, Keith turned away and then turned back. He looked closely at me, inspecting me. What have you done to your ear? There's blood all over your collar. Now Keith began to look concerned. Keith, he saw me. I was there. Who saw you? Nigel, the killer. No, he didn't. That's impossible. How could he have seen you? I was there. I mean, I was really there. I tried to escape when he saw me and I ran into the back door. I wiped my palm across my ear. It was raw and felt gritty. You were in there, Keith nodded towards the bedroom, an expression of terror germinating on his face. How could you have been somewhere else, physically? I don't know. I don't know. Keith, I don't know what happened. This bloke came round, shot Longy, and then I was there in the room with him. He looked me straight in the eye and said, where did you come from? I thought he was talking to someone else, but when I realised he meant me, I tried to wake up. I tried to come back to my body like I always do, but I couldn't. Nothing happened. Nothing. That has never happened before. So I ran. I know I was there in the flesh. I know, because I ran straight into that door. It's our fault, Keith. Keith had both hands over his mouth now and was staring at the floor, his eyes wide, his pupils fixed on a point some thousand yards underground. No light was reflecting from his pupils at all. What are we going to do? I said. I was terrified. Ever since my first few forays onto the astral plane, or wherever it was I went, I knew where I stood. I knew what the rules were, how things worked, and, most importantly, how to get back. All that had changed suddenly. Was it real? I might have written it off as a dream or an hallucination, were it not for my ringing ear, my clanging skull, my screaming shoulder and the blood on my palm. And anyway, I knew it had been real. I could try to fool myself with theories and explanations, but I knew in the base of my spine and in my liquefying bowels that the unthinkable had just happened. It was real, 
It was my fault. Keith began speaking. Okay, first off, it's not my fault. It's not your fault either. Did you pull the trigger? No. Did you get Trevor Long mixed up with criminals? No. All we did was make a bit of money. A perfectly reasonable sum of money. Were we greedy? How were we to know any of this would happen? It's not our fault. End of. Now, secondly, were you followed? I looked up. Keith was breathing slowly and deliberately. His attempts to regain some of his composure appeared to be working. Did you see this guy anywhere beforehand? Tell me everything that happened. I did. And that's the end of the sixth part of Three Deaths, No Life by me, Alan Boyce. I will be back soon. Let's leave the date indefinite with the seventh part. Goodbye for now.